Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Philosophy, the podcast channel with the New Books Network that features interviews with philosophers about their recently published books. I'm Carrie Figdor of the University of Iowa, and I'm co-host of the channel, along with Robert Talese of Vanderbilt. Today's interview is with Jill Gordon, Charles A. Dana Professor of Philosophy at Colby College. Her new book is Plato's Erotic World, which is just out from Cambridge University Press. It's traditional in Plato's scholarship to divide his dialogues in various ways. One division is a temporal one in, into what are considered early, middle, and late dialogues. Another is by content. There are the so-called erotic dialogues, which include such dialogues as Symposium, Phaedrus, and Alcibiades, where themes of love and friendship are explicitly treated. And then there's the rest of them, which deal with such non-erotic themes as language and knowledge and ontology. But in her new book, Professor Gordon argues that this second division deeply misinterprets the role of Eros throughout the Platonic corpus, and that even what are taken to be non-erotic dialogues, such as Theotetus, Parmenides, and Phaedo, are deeply erotic, and that the theme of Eros unifies the corpus rather than divides it. For example, the Socratic dialectic, or Elenchus, is a give-and-take that is erotic in nature, and doing philosophy itself is an erotic endeavor akin to naked exercise in the gymnasium. Her argument begins with a close reading of Timaeus, Plato's creation myth, and the role of Eros in the immortal human soul, and it comes full circle with a reading of the Phaedo, in which Socrates' growing rigidity as the hemlock takes hold is also an erotic pun. Let's turn to the interview. Hi, Jill. Hi, Carrie. Hi, welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Thank you, and thanks so much for the opportunity to talk about my work. Yeah, this is this is great. Um, Plato's uh, erotic world. Um, you give a defense of the importance of eros in Plato's dramatic world, um, and you're trying to undermine traditional interpretations of, of key dialogues um, to show them as deeply erotic. Um, and that's a pretty interesting... Um, approach uh, because you know Plato of course is is one of the philosophers who is who is so widely known and and widely discussed and and to give a new interpretation like this is is really pretty exciting well thank you yeah it's one of those projects um, where you're sort of working on it thinking wow this is really eccentric uh, and then you know you kind of have two choices to think that maybe you might move the center to some other place um, or, you know, really just convince people to think about these dialogues differently. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a little bit of a crazy project to think about Parmenides and Cratylus and Theotetus and Phaedo and so forth as, uh, erotic d- dialogues, but, um, that's, that's what I'm doing. So let me, before we get into the, the, the book itself, um, maybe you can introduce yourself a little bit about how you got into philosophy and what, what led you to uh, doing ancient philosophy, and then in particular, 
what led you to what led you to this book? So um, I would say for me, philosophy was love at first sight, and that was my very first uh, day in college. I took an introductory course with Professor John Roth at the Claremont Colleges at CMC. And I just really fell in love. I think we read the Apology first. Uh, Of course, um, being a young person, I thought I had to do something quote-unquote practical. So I was actually an economics major. But um, John Roth really mentored me and helped me to think about philosophy eventually as a major my senior year because I had taken so many classes anyway uh, and then as a career um, and I'm just really grateful for that and of course I have stayed with my first love ancient philosophy Um, and what got you to the topic of this book well um, it started out really just a couple of articles that I wrote uh, trying to think through whether erotic desire could be found in some other dialogues. I started with uh, what became the first chapter, the Timaeus, and it really had a kind of organic life of its own. It did not start as a book project. I thought I would write one article, uh, and then I thought, oh, gosh, maybe I'll write another article. I think maybe there's some erotic things in this other dialogue. Uh, And before I knew it, I started thinking in broader terms, gee, maybe um, Eros is something kind of like Socratic ignorance, that it's deeply fundamental to who we are as human beings. And if that's so, then it would be something Plato is very much concerned with across the dialogues. And so I would say it wasn't really um, until maybe two, three years into those other projects that I started thinking about this as a book. So um, the first thing I guess we should probably clarify is um, how you understand the term eros and and also what you call uh, Plato's world or Plato's dramatic world. Okay. Um, I want to say one other thing before I get to that, and Mm -hmm. that is that this book contains work on pretty much every dialogue that really intimidates me. And so I want to just give a shout out to all the scholars who have devoted their lives to really painstaking work on these incredibly complex dialogues because I could not have done this project uh, without them, just to to guide me through them and help me understand what's going on on in them. So... um, First of all, I guess I'll start with Eros. It does take me pretty much the whole book to flesh out the concept, but I can give a kind of preliminary account and then maybe through our conversation that will also get fleshed out. Eros is, first of all, a primordial human desire, and it arises from our original alienation from being or, you know, being capital B. Uh, This happens in the act of individuation when soul becomes souls. And uh, I'm taking this, by the way, from the Timaeus. And so Eros is a kind of mark on humans or a sign in humans of this alienation. And so it's a kind of desire aimed at, um, it's a desire aimed at disalienation. That's one way to think about it, or a, a reunification with being. Now, that's a very abstract way to think about it. But in a concrete way, as embodied beings, of course, 
um, our eros gets expressed in a lot of different ways. Um, sexual attraction to other beings is, of course, uh, at the top of the list. But I also argue in the book that it gets expressed in doing philosophy generally, asking questions, thinking hypothetically, and very generally in our desire to know a lot of things that really lie beyond the desire, or excuse me, lie beyond the abilities of people uh, to know. Um, yeah. Okay, so um, in the in the uh, you draw an arc in the book um, mm-hmm. that echoes the arc of the life cycle in in oh well before we get to that oh, Plato's, Plato's world, world. yeah yeah, yeah right because I was just going to say that yeah yeah okay so Plato's world I'm sorry I forgot uh, that part of the question so I wanted to make the point that Plato's concerns with Eros were as broad as possible for any philosopher. Uh, That is, I wanted to really expand our thinking about Plato's concern for Eros beyond the erotic dialogues. And Plato's world really captures that. And so what I mean by Plato's world is this fictive creation um, that Plato has created through all of the dialogues when you look at them as a whole. Now, as people who read Plato know, it's a very vivid world, and we we can really enter it, and we tell stories about it, and we feel we know and understand the characters who inhabit it, and we understand the locations where philosophy takes place, and we kind of get the logic of that world. Um, now, of course, it's also a world that has some inconsistencies in it, but it's nonetheless coherent enough to provide a kind of complete picture. And so what I do in the book, how I describe or capture that complete picture, is I begin from the origins of the cosmos, which we have uh, in the Timaeus, and that includes, of course, the creation of human beings. And then I look at um, four dialogues that trace human life and especially the cultivation of the human soul in various ways. And then finally, I turn to human death uh, in the Phaedo and look at that as a kind of return to origins. So it's an entire world, but it's also a cycle. Um, It's a a life cycle of a human um, life. Yeah, so that's why you you draw a really nice arc in the book that sort of comes full circle in this way. You're beginning with the with the Timaeus, and going through Cratylus, Parmenides, Theaetetus, um, and some other dialogues, and then back to uh, Phaedo, where where mm-hmm. Socrates is is dying, and and then finally does die. Um, so so beginning with the creation myth in the in the Timaeus, mm-hmm. um, traditionally. Um, Eros is is mapped onto the appetitive part of the tripartite soul in the Republic, um, and of course that is the the yeah as appetite that of course is supposed to be controlled by reason, right. you know, in the well ordered uh, soul, um, and you you contest this you know very common reading, um, and so as a result our um, our noetic activity our our pursuit of knowledge in general um, is. Uh, as you interpret it, and, and an erotic pursuit. Um, yes. So can you can you explain your uh, your very? This is a critical part of the whole of the, your whole argument is is how you see the um, the the creation myth and and the immortal soul and its relation to the 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 mortal soul. Right. Okay. So let me. I'll talk a little bit about the um, noose. Sorry, a little bit about eros and the appetites, and then um, try to take up noose after that. So, on my reading of the Timaeus, I think it's really unfortunate that eros gets mapped onto the appetitive part of the soul. Um, 
what we see more generally in the dialogues actually is that Eros is pretty consistently associated with the divine um, and that it, it has the power to channel human desire in positive and even divine directions. Epithymia is never associated with the divine. Um, now, I, I want to, I'll say a little bit about the Republic, and then I want to kind of set that aside, um, because I'm, as you say, I'm arguing against importing that uh, Republic's view of the tripart soul into the Timaeus, with which it's it's inconsistent. Um, in the Timaeus, what we see is that Eros is what drives us to noetic understanding. So Eros is actually prior to Nous. Uh, and I think that's just really important. Um, as you say, I do spend a, a fair bit of time in the book arguing against this traditional view that wants to link the Timaeus um, with uh, the Republic. The other thing that I think is really central to how the Timaeus pre- presents Eros in the human soul is that it, it makes it very clear that Eros is an active aspect of the human soul and that epithumia is passive um, and that the very activity that Eros takes up is this drive towards uh, noetic entities or um, stimulating noose, if you will. Um, so let's see, I wanted to say... Um, yeah, so I, I work towards this moment in the Timaeus where Timaeus makes it really clear that what the soul does is desire in an erotic way. He uses a a cognate of Eros, noetic objects. Um, Now, I I don't know if this is maybe getting a little far afield, but we can sort of... Plato is thought of by a lot of philosophers as kind of this prototypical rationalist, and I think that's um, why we want to think of nous or episteme even as these grounding fundamental things in human beings. And clearly the Republic is a dialogue where, um, you know, these things rule in the soul and so forth. But um, he, although Plato's a kind of rationalist, I think that we need to ask the question, okay, but what's the driving force behind human knowing and human understanding and the Timaeus and by the way other dialogues as well uh, we can talk a little bit later about recollection but other things really drive human beings to that kind of philosophical inquiry that might result in noose or episteme so I'm, I'm really trying to get at the priority of episteme over noose so what is um, on your view um, what is the relation between the the human immortal soul um, and then the human mortal soul. Right. Um, so I do a very close reading of these two passages in the Timaeus, which a, a traditional reading of that dialogue has claimed are just the second one is merely a recapitulation of the first. And I, I'll, I'll kind of shorten my take on that. I basically make two arguments against taking the second account as merely recapitulating the first. I think that the first account is an account of the immortal soul as it's created by uh, the demiurge, or at least started by the demiurge. And then I take the second argument very clearly to be the mortal soul, which has degenerated and which is corrupted to a certain degree by uh, the lesser gods having taken over and made it um, uh, embodied or enfleshed. So the first argument 
that I make has simply to do with comparing the language of the two passages. And the second passage includes negative adjectives throughout. And so what appears in the first passage as merely a description of the soul having this or that faculty, in the second passage it describes that faculty in a negative way. The second, and I think really salient aspect of the relationship between these two arguments is that the first one takes place in the first part of the Timaeus where Timaeus is giving noetic creation. Uh, And the second one takes place in the part of the dialogue after the so-called new beginning or second start that Timaeus makes, where he's going to talk about um, this other world, this material uh, world of necessity. And so it's a very different argument. Um, so I think that's how we want to think about the uh, the immortal soul versus the mortal soul. And I make it clear that the uh, immortal soul, in fact, includes eros. Again, eros as a mark of this initial alienation from being. So let let's step back for a moment from from Plato's dramatic world um, and uh, draw some sort of a relationship to to our world. I mean, Timaeus Timaeus is a is a creation myth. Um, how does your reading of Plato inform how we should understand humans from you know the materialist or evolved biological perspective that we you know yeah. tend to have? Well, sadly, I don't think it does inform or could inform a more materialist or biological perspective on Uh humans. I I think Plato's world is really steeped in non-material origins of humans and other ensouled beings. And if we're talking about the Timaeus, of course, the world itself um, has these non-material origins. Now, that said, I think... um, you could make the move of thinking about whether there are fundamental desires as in the way that I'm talking about Eros as a fundamental desire that have material bases um, and that drive human behavior. I think we could talk about Nietzsche in this way. You know, Nietzsche really has a very biological and species focused idea about humanity. And so maybe if we wanted to talk about Nietzsche's understanding of human life and the will to power in human life, um, that might be a move. Or Freud, of course, following uh, in Nietzsche's footstep. And, you know, maybe contemporary geneticists or neurobiologists might want to explain fundamental human desires. But I I, I just don't know that we can get that from Plato's um, worldview. Okay, fair enough. Um, Unless you know something I don't. Maybe there's something I'm just not thinking about here. Um, well, I mean, I, I, I suppose the it's a it's a it's a background uh, assumption of the of the book that uh, some sort of substance dualism is true. And um, since you know mo- many people today you know don't think that that's true, um, uh, one would not want to simply say, well, because the whole platonic corpus depends on substance dualism, therefore it's irrelevant. Um, it's, uh, you know, to, that, that's the, that is sort of the issue. Um, right. Well, I, I guess I feel the following way. If we want to talk about what I think is really relevant to our lives right now from my reading of this, uh, I think I can get that without having to agree with Plato's particular view of 
of the human soul and its origins and so forth. I think the chapters that talk about how we might cultivate our desires Mm -hmm. and how joining into particular kinds of relations with human beings might help us to guide those desires in proper ways, that's really, I think, useful and could be formative, even if we don't accept this very, what I'm saying is a non-materialist account of the origins of the human soul, or a non-materialist account of Eros in particular. Good. Well, um, so let's move on to one of the, um, well, the first uh, aspect of self-cultivation that you that you um, discuss in, in the Cratylus, which is, again, usually taken as a dialogue in, in philosophy of language and, and ontology. Um, and your interpretation relates Eros um, and the interrogative state um, that, and that even the the sort of the give and take of uh, questioning of the Socratic Alenkis is itself um, erotic, and and questioning um, the the act of questioning is, um, on your view, a, a risky expression of a yes. lack uh, of something that's missing, and of a desire to um, to um, to satisfy that lack. Um, so maybe you could you know tell us a bit about your your interpretation of Cratylus. Sure. Um, I want to just say by way of preface that Mm -hmm. I describe in my introduction that none of the chapters is intended to be a kind of full-blown interpretation of a single dialogue, but really to do a thorough treatment of how Eros appears in that dialogue and to think about it against the backdrop of it. So with with that said, um, my reading of um, Cratylus is based primarily on two parts of it. First of all, the introductory um, first several pages in which Socrates and Hermogenes actually engage in in an elanctic exchange. Um, And then secondly, one of the etymologies that comes in the bulk of the dialogue, for people who've not read it, this dialogue contains at its core a series of uh, etymologies uh, that Socrates just sort of spouts out. So I, I start with the elanctic part, and I focus on Socrates' insistence in that um, exchange with Hermogenes that the dialectician is the person who is expert at asking questions. That's what defines the dialectician. And furthermore, the dialectician is extremely important because it's the dialectician who rules or guides, or supervises, depending on how you want to translate this word, the person who makes correct names. This is a dialogue about naming. Um, so this person who makes correct names, the nomothetes, it works under the guidance or supervision of the dialectician, the person who knows how to ask questions. So I think this hierarchy with the questioner on top kind of looms in the background of this dialogue. Um, It's really the upshot of that first elanctic part of the dialogue. So as Socrates and Hermogenes then move on to the etymologies, I want to be thinking about this. Okay, why is it important that someone who asks questions is kind of uh, supervising how we name things? So I then turn to one of the etymologies in particular, which is Socrates' explanation for the derivation of the word hero, and he takes three Greek words here and links them, here, the word for hero, the word for eros, um, and uh, the word for questioning. Um, and they all are, they're homophones, they sound very similar. And then the etymology he gives is, well, you know, heroes are called this because 
They spring from eros, from the erotic love between mortals and immortals. Or, he says, the other reason that heroes might be called heroes is that they are clever dialecticians and question askers. So um, I sort of take this etymology, etymology seriously, not as a true origin of this word, but as Plato making some serious links between these concepts, hero, eros, and question asking. So I'll set aside the hero part because that actually helps to link this chapter to the next, which is on courage. Mm -hmm. But I do probe then this um, link between eros and question asking. So I I go to the symposium now, which I I do go to the traditional erotic dialogues to um, kind of open up these other texts and to help me think through them. And I look at the language that Plato uses there in the symposium, and I show that in the symposium, in Diotima's speech, she is repeatedly punning on exactly these same two words for questioning and eros. This pushes me to ask whether there's a deeper connection between questioning and eros, that this is quite conscious on Plato's part. And I make the case that in fact, they do have a very common basis, eros and questioning, and that basis is a desire, a lack, a recognition of that lack, and then uh, a desire to remedy it. That's where questions come from. They come from recognizing one's lack and having a desire to remedy it. So um, then I turn to Socrates's claims to ignorance, which are very well known, and the claim in the symposium that he is an expert on eros. And mm-hmm. some people think this is really paradoxical. Right. He says, you know, I don't know anything. Um, also claim I'm an expert on eros. And I try to say that this connection between questioning and eros gives us the answer to that question. Um, Socrates is an expert on eros because he's an expert on asking questions because he's ignorant. Um, and this is why I claim that the Socratic method is um, erotic and why I claim that dialogues are erotic, um, all of them, because Socrates is engaging in erotic activity merely by asking questions. Um, so uh, you also characterize Mino's paradox, which is you know one of the more famous um, uh, passages um, in the dialogues in, in the Mino um, as as itself deeply erotic, um, which which I thought was pretty interesting. Could you say something about that? Yeah, actually, my point is that the paradox is anti-erotic. Right. Uh, that it it um, the whole upshot of that moment in the dialogue. You know, it's really this dramatic, heavy moment. Mino's paradox. It's it's not just about kind of throwing a wrench in the works in his conversation with with Socrates, it throws a wrench in the works for any inquiry whatsoever. You know, it basically says, look, humans, what's the point of uh, investigating any further? And so um, I think if we take questioning as an erotic activity, then it stands to reason that sophistic modes of speech-making and giving answers and being confident in your answers and not being at a loss, this is anti-erotic uh, behavior. It, it really forestalls questioning. Um, yeah. Uh, I th- so I, th- I thought that was a very, you know, interesting um, addition to my understanding of, of the paradox for sure. Um, now in, in the Parmenides, um, you connect 
uh, as you mentioned, um, Eros with courage, um, and in particular, um, the courage of asking questions, um, of, of yes. re- revealing oneself to have a lack and to, to, to desire to have it you know, corrected or, or overcome. Um, and you also um, characterize philosophy itself as, as an erotic endeavor because of this relation to yes. questioning, and, and you draw, draw the relationship between philosophy and um, nec- naked exercise in the gymnasium, right? Yes, um, yes. Which, which is something that, you know, few philosophers or, or philosophy students um, think <laughs> of what they're doing. In fact, um, uh, if, if, if word got out, you know, we might get a lot more majors. Um, <laughs> but could, could you, could you um, expand on that reading of, of uh, certain passages, at least, of, of Parmenides? Sure, and uh, I'll try to be as c- concise as I can. It gets a, a fairly complicated to talk about um, Parmenides. So I guess what I'd like to do is maybe divide my answer. I want to talk a little bit about why I read the Parmenides as an erotic dialogue, and that that's a way for me to actually get to this passage you're talking about, which indeed comes from the Theotetus, um, where Socrates makes reference to naked wrestling. But there, it's all of a piece, so um, I'll try, try to be pretty concise about this. So um, the first thing that I would want to say about the Parmenides is that although a lot of philosophers agree that Plato often introduces really important philosophical themes in his dialogues in the very early passages, or what some people call the prologues, and that he does this through setting and characterization and so forth. In my opinion, there wasn't very much literature that did that adequately with the Parmenides. I think it has a really fascinating um, first part. So um, on my reading of the Parmenides, it's a thoroughly and unapologetically erotic dialogue. So let me say a little bit about why I think that. Um, First of all, it details the lover-beloved relationship between Parmenides and Zeno, and it's brought up twice. It's brought up first in the framing story that's told by Antiphon, right? Antiphon is relating the content of this conversation that Socrates had with Parmenides. So the framing story contains reference to this erotic relationship to Parmenides and Zeno. And then again, in the interior dialogue, Socrates himself brings it up in a kind of um, uh, inappropriate way with Zeno uh, and kind of needles Zeno about uh, being uh, Parmenides' favorite. Then secondly, there's a poem that Parmenides cites fairly early in the dialogue. It's an Ibicus poem, and people might remember that Ibicus is, uh, he's a lyric poet. He writes erotic poetry. And he's also the poet who is referenced um, very briefly in the Phaedrus. So Parmenides makes a reference to an Ibicus poem, and he uses it to describe how he feels when Socrates asks Parmenides to carry out this demonstration that then takes up the bulk of the dialogue, um, all of the um, hypothetical deductions. And this poem is incredibly erotic. <laughs> um, in the poem, Parmenides likens himself to an old horse. That the, the poem is about an old horse, but Parmenides says, I feel like the old horse. And in the poem, the old horse is um, uh, called by the god Eros. And Eros urges the old horse to the race, um, and the horse feels that because of Eros's charms, he has to go to the race, even though he's unwilling to go, and he's old and not really up for it. Um, the full text of this poem is in Proclus, and um, even though Parmenides just signs, uh, cites a couple of lines. 
So on an explicit level, Parmenides is invoking Eros in an erotic poem, and he's saying Eros will drive him on to complete this really difficult philosophical task that he's just about to do. On a more figurative level, uh, the horse is a common phallic stand-in in in comedy and poetry. And so, um, you know, there's one way to read this, uh, as I say in the book, that Parmenides is saying, look, you know, I'm not sure I can get it up anymore, you know, philosophically speaking, but I'm going to do it anyway, because I'm kind of erotically urged on to this task. Um, So those few little dramatic details really um, set up my reading. Oh, and I should say one other, the setting of this dialogue, the inner dialogue, um, takes place during uh, the Pan-Athenea festival. And the festival, as we know, includes a torch race that ran from the altar of Eros to, um, which is uh, somewhere near the academy, mm-hmm. to the altar of um, Anteros or reciprocal love, which is at, excuse me, at the base of the Acropolis. So mm-hmm. it's clearly there's so many signals in the early parts of this dialogue that they're ensconced in a kind of uh, erotic environment. Okay. So that said, now let me just, oh, and and I should also say then the link to courage Mm -hmm. is it's going to take Parmenides a lot of courage to do this thing, to get back in this race, to give this very difficult um, hypothetical uh, deduction. So if it's okay with you, Carrie, I'd like to sort of leave the courage thing right on the back burner for just a minute Mm -hmm. and one more thing about my interpretation of Parmenides, why I think it's so deeply erotic. Uh, and then I'll come back to this naked wrestling thing. <laughs> so um, there's a point in the deductions uh, that is really important. And a lot of ink has been spilled about what it means. Um, it comes right after the second hypothesis. And Parmenides is describing all the antinomies that follow from this second hypothesis, that the one is both at rest and in motion, that the one is neither temporal nor atemporal, and that the one is neither becoming nor being. Mm-hmm. Um, and Parmenides says that there are some, um, there's some strange thing, uh, atopos is the Greek that he used, some strange thing that fits this description. And he says, this is what we call the instantaneous. Um, the Greek word here is exiphnes. It can also mean all of a sudden. Okay, So mm-hmm. the, it's this tertiary uh, on, ontological mode. So it's somehow between all of these things. Now, scholars agree pretty unanimously that this is an absolutely crucial point in the dialogue. But they don't agree why. <laughs> they have lots of different explanations for why this weird little anomaly in the deductions is important. So I take this in a very different direction, and I try to make some connections to the repeated use of this notion of exiphnes, the all of a sudden, the instantaneous. And I link it to the symposium, where this term also has a really prominent role. In the symposium, the lover's noetic revelation is this flash, this insight, ta exiphnes, this instantaneous flash. Um, And we know also from the symposium that Eros bridges these kinds of modal gaps between being and coming, mortal, immortal, or divine and human, and so forth. Um, It's a kind of disalienating moment, (laughs) if you will. So um, 
this is one of the connections then that I make uh, between Symposium and Parmenides, trying to think about how Eros uh, has a role in these deep uh, ontological questions. Okay, so then to this uh, naked wrestling. Uh, so if we look back at the Parmenides and we take very seriously what Parmenides says about how much courage it's going to take to uh, um, go through this very difficult deduction and by the way, there are other marks in the dialogue where he really tries to buck up Socrates' own courage, the young, the young Socrates. Right. So when I turn to the Theotetes, I look at this really nice metaphor where Theodorus, the older teacher of Theotetus, is trying to wriggle out of engaging in question and answer with Socrates. And we could say it's because he lacks the courage. I mean, it's kind of a scary thing to be to subject yourself to Socrates' questioning. And so Socrates says, you know, do you mean to tell me that you're going to let um, people go out there and wrestle naked while you stand here fully clothed and, and watch on and look on? And I, I take it as a metaphor for the vulnerability and exposure that it takes to really get down there and wrestle with deep philosophical problems. And of course, it's a challenge that Theodorus is not willing to take up. He basically says, yeah, I'd love to watch some naked people wrestle while I'm fully clothed if they'll let me. Uh, so um, I take very seriously this metaphor and the erotic uh, connections that it has. I draw heavily, too, in uh, on... Uh, Scanlon's work on erotics in Greek athletics, which talks in great detail about uh, the erotics involved in naked wrestling in particular, but also just generally the homosocial environment surrounding the palaestra, um, uh, the setting of many, many um, of Plato's dialogues, including Theotetus. So that's why I think it takes courage and, and why uh, I think Socrates uses this metaphor of naked wrestling. Well, let me just, uh, before, I, I do want to get uh, back to your discussion of Theotetus directly. Um, but it, um, as you just mentioned, um, the, the whole context of this, uh, of, of Eros, as, as it's discussed in, in Plato, by Plato, um, is between men, right? It's, yes. Uh, Parmenides yeah. and Zeno and uh, Socrates himself and Alcibiades and, and, and so on. Um, and so... Uh, you know, it sort of raises the question of of whether you know his view of of eros is is necessarily between men and youths, or um, is that just a matter of you know the social conditions that he lived in? Um, I mean, poor yeah. you know Socrates' wife Xanthippe is is completely <laughs> left out, and yeah. and so it sort of raises the question of how you know generalizable um, you know his whole this whole reading might be um, to include uh, female souls as well yeah. as male souls, or, or maybe they just fundamentally differ. Yes, yes. Poor Xanthippe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I have in the back of my mind some project someday of writing a comic novel uh, from her point of view. I think that would be a lot of fun. Um, so this is a wonderful can of worms that I think uh, my work does open uh, but doesn't deal with completely. I, I do deal to a certain degree with um, the Greek homosocial world and gender in that regard. So perhaps 
there could be some more future work on gender in a more robust way than I've done. But I, I can say a few things about this. Um, it's really sad, I think, that there's that moment in the Republic where Socrates tells us that, you know, of course, the women should train amongst the men and be able to compete and so on and so forth. Of course, it gets dropped, <laughs> that idea of um, the philosopher, the women becoming philosopher kings or queens uh, really drops out of the picture. Um, and Socrates does not follow through on its consequences. In the dialogues that I'm dealing with in this book, I'm afraid there's not a lot that's hopeful for us. Um, in fact, even in the Timaeus, um, Timaeus speaks in generic terms when he's talking about the creation of souls. But then near the end of the dialogue, when he's talking about what happens to corrupt souls, he reveals that the punishment for corrupt souls is that they are going to return as women. Aye, aye, aye. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yes, it's really sad. Um, now, that seems to cast in a really different light how we think about the creation of souls in that or origin story. Some scholars think that it necessarily implies that they're all male, uh, but there's disagreement about that. It might not uh, necessarily imply that in the beginning when the souls are created that they're male. And uh, Cornford uh, ventures an opinion on this, and uh, Kalkovich also has an opinion. So it's a particular conundrum, really, because so much of Western philosophy uses this generic language about humans, about souls, and all these kinds of concepts when they're dealing with human beings. But then these are put alongside very clear references to men and masculine culture. So um, what I do talk about in the book are things like the palestra, horse racing, which is another venue of homosocial uh, connection, athletics generally, and warfare. Those play a role in all of the dialogues that I, I look at. So um, I'm, I am thinking of this as, at least from Plato's writer uh, vantage point as a writer, these are dialogues about men's connection to other men. And it's clear that Plato is talking about that with regard to Eros. I'd like to think that Diotima had an erotic soul. <laughs> and I'd like to think that even though Plato might be focused on uh, the uh, male homosocial world, that we might expand that world a little bit and, and think about all human beings. Um, so... So in the Theotetus, of course, there's the um, the metaphor of the midwife, which which is a, a female, traditionally female role. Yeah. Um, and um, so at, at least there's that, right, where he does draw that connection. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but you also, um, to get to your, your chapter on Theotetus and, and its connection with, with Eros, um, you also, you suggest that... Um, that this role of midwife also has, I think, uh, some sort of extension to involve matchmaking. Yes. Um, so, so maybe you could uh, tell us about about how you how you interpret um, at least certain passages in Theotetus. Right. Yes. Um, so the Theotetus makes it really clear that there are these two aspects um, to the midwifery. Um, he elaborates on this. Socrates does. And I really think it deserved more attention. It doesn't get a lot of attention in the secondary literature. Um, I think scholarship has primarily focused on the aspects of the metaphor of delivery and giving birth and then, you know, the viability of the ideas once they're delivered from the soul. 
And I think the matchmaking part of this um, metaphor actually gets us to think about the before as opposed to the after. That is how two fertile souls might be brought together to beget, to get something. Um, and I, th- I just thought that was really uh, important. So the passage itself, it's, it's um, Socrates says, you know, I'm, I'm a, a midwife and not very many people know this about me and so forth. But then he also says that um, midwives also do this other thing. There's this other aspect to their work, but they don't like to talk about it very much because they do this really legitimate thing, but it's easy to understand it in its illegitimate practice. That is, they're matchmakers, but they don't want to be thought of as pimps or mm-hmm. pimpers. Uh, it's it's really sort of funny, I I think. So I, uh, I look very carefully at this and, again, um, try to think broadly about what Plato might be up to here. And the word that's used here for um, matchmaker is um, promnestra, and it means literally one who solicits for another. But its root is this verb, nomai, um, that's an a M and an N or a mu and a nu uh, together. And it means to be mindful. So what the matchmaker does is to bring to the mind of another <laughs> the, the person she's trying to fix them up with. What's really fascinating to me is that this bringing to mind, this promnestra matchmaking, shares the same root with anamnesis, which is uh, recollection. Um, as we know, the primary way in which we as humans are connected to noetic objects while we're embodied beings. And so I started thinking very, um, sort of taking this idea of matchmaking in this philosophical direction and wanting to think about how matchmaking could happen both on a human-to-human level, matching one's soul to the soul of another who could be a guide or a teacher, which I talk about later in, in the book. But then also another kind of matchmaking that um, we try to introduce or bring to mind the forms to um, people's mind. That's what recollection is, to bring those things to mind. So there's some connections, and we'll talk about this later, I suppose, connections to my last chapter on the Phaedo, in which I take up recollection again or take up anamnesis. Yeah, so there are two two um, topics that you that you just mentioned that I that I do want to pick up on. One is um, so in chapter five when you when you do turn directly to dialogues that are classified as as erotic, um, and you uh, talk about self knowledge and yeah. the idea of of guidance, you know, particularly by an older level older lover for um for the younger one Mm -hmm. um so maybe you could say something about that sure i I think it's important to note why i turned to these two erotic dialogues when i started um fleshing out what i thought the book would look like and thinking about this arc of self-cultivation of these things that one does with one's soul to cultivate eros in the right ways i i of course, thought, well, self-knowledge, that seems to be an important aspect of self-cultivation in the Platonic Dialogues. And lo and behold, it turns out that um, if you look at the indices of both the Hamilton Cairns uh, Plato Collection and the Cooper Plato Collection, they both show that self-knowledge is treated only in the traditional erotic dialogues. Hmm. That was really fascinating uh, to me. So um, that really got me thinking about, okay, so what is it about Eros and self-knowledge that is um, so 
uh, entangled or entwined. So in this chapter, then, I turn to both the Alcibiades one and to Phaedrus. I do a fairly robust reading of the first, and I draw on the Phaedrus for support of that reading. The Alcibiades is a dialogue, as I read it, about erotic guidance through a kind of Socratic seduction. Um, In this instance, of course, um, ultimately a failed seduction, though successful in the small context of this one uh, dialogue. Um, The image of the self-seeing eye is really central to this dialogue. This is the image when Socrates is urging Alcibiades to get self-knowledge, to have self-knowledge. And he says that the way you do this, you know, how do you look at your own soul? How do you do that? Well, Socrates says that the way you do that is, it's like if you wanted to see your own pupil, how do you get to see your own pupil? Well, you have to look into something that's going to reflect your own eye back to you so that you can see your own pupil. So you get this reflexive image. Self-knowledge doesn't come directly mm-hmm. through looking into yourself inter- through an interior it's a reflection re- excuse me it's a reflexive process and you get it by he says looking into the eyes of your lover who reflects back to you your true soul your true self so just as you see your own pupil by looking into the eye of another so you see your own soul by looking at yourself reflected back to you uh, through your lover. lover. So I take really seriously this idea that um, self-knowledge has to come then through relation and in particular through erotic relation. Um, And where the uh, Phaedrus comes in then is really to support this connection between eros and guidance. And I look there at the way in which leading and being led uh, are thematized in the Phaedrus. And just if you look again at the very opening parts of the dialogue, when Socrates and Phaedrus um, um, first meet up, and he's being led to the, they walk, stroll along the river and get to the plane tree, um, leading and being led is mentioned nine times just in that short little walk to the plane tree. Mm-hmm. And it's also significant that the verb that's used here for leading and being led, led comes from the infinitive is pro-again. And that word also means pimping. <laughs> so again, there's this really body humor here as well as a kind of connection between these erotic connections and philosophical inquiry. We're trying to join people together. We're trying to join people to uh, noetic objects. We're trying to create philosophy, to create philosophical inquiry. And it's all happening in these erotic ways. So we we come full circle um, in the last chapter when, when you go back to a, a supposedly non-erotic dialogue, the, the Phaedo, um, and you discuss further the, the theory of recollection, mm-hmm. um, and you describe philosophy as, as the, the practice of embodied beings who are attempting in the limited manner available to them to reconnect to originary objects of knowledge and desire from which they are alienated mm-hmm. and to prepare for u- reunification after death. Um, and, um, you know, Socrates, of course, in that dialogue is, um, you know, he takes the hemlock and he's looking forward to it, right? I mean, yes. he's, been pre- yeah. he's been preparing for this 
um, all his life, um, it, um, at least if, if what he says is to be believed. Um, so uh, could you discuss your interpretation of the dialogue? Um, yeah. Sure. So I guess I would really like to highlight um, three things from that chapter. It's a fairly lengthy chapter. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about recollection um, and then the connection between Phaedo and Phaedrus and then the last part of that chapter, which really is about a connection between the Phaedo and the Odyssey. And that's where nostalgia um, comes in. Right. So um, I do a fairly detailed reading of the Phaedo in which I show that the introduction of recollection in this dialogue is made, again, in a highly erotic fa uh, fashion. The analogy that Socrates chooses to illustrate his introduction to recollection is that recollecting the forms is like seeing the cloak or the lyre of one's lover and then being reminded of him. So it's really clear that Socrates is saying recollection is like recalling an erotic object. Um, that's really important to me. Uh, and I, I really do believe that the objects of recollection and the objects of eros are the same things, these noetic uh, objects. It's also the case that the lyre is an instrument that is associated with lyric poetry, which is the poetry um, that erotic, um, it's erotic love poetry. And of course, the cloak um, brings to mind the shape or the form, Ados, the look uh, of the beloved, his body, perhaps. So I really think that this is a really highly erotically charged introduction of recollection in this particular dialogue. Um, I'll, I'll just speak briefly on one thing. I, I talk later in the chapter, I do a very close reading of the um, eschatological myths in Phaedo and Phaedrus. And I won't go into details here, but I, I look at their typology and I again go back to the issue of guidance. What I said about the Phaedrus and guidance and being led in our earthly human embodied lives I now try to think about guidance and being led in the afterlife uh, in these two myths. So um, so I want to talk about the Odyssey. I think that's an important part of this chapter and, again, touches on this issue of nostalgia that you asked about. So first of all, our word nostalgia comes from two Greek words, nostos, uh, which is the Greek term for uh, homecoming, a journey home. And it's typically a journey that has a lot of obstacles to it and overcoming in order to get there. So the Odyssey, of course, is our paradigmatic nostos um, story. But there were others in the Greek world. Um, the Greek word algos is pain. So the word nostalgia is this sort of homesickness or home pain. It's this pain or longing for the home because you're not there. So... What I try to do in the last part of this uh, chapter is to think about the Phaedo and really Socrates' entire life as it's depicted in Plato's world as a kind of nostos story, as a traditional homecoming story in which he's met with all kinds of obstacles and challenges before he returns home. There is some fascinating work done by classicists on etymological connections between nostos and nous, or in its older form, noos, and I should give credit, this is um, Naj and Lochterman and Frame. Mm -hmm. And collectively, their work traces the ways in which the Odyssey plays on these puns. You know, they're saying Homer is punning on these two terms, nous and nostos. 
through the the many names and epithets in uh, the Odyssey story, and more pointedly, um, they argue that Odysseus himself is the locus of the coincidence of these two terms. What they mean is Odysseus's very return home, his nostos, depends on his intelligence, his noose. <laughs> Um, so his nostos is his noose. It's very, very interesting um, work. So I look back to two of the stories in the Odyssey, and these are two stories in which um, the homecoming is really threatened. And in particular, it's threatened because of um, uh, hampering of memory recollection. So if you look at the Lotus Eaters and when Circe is keeping the men on the, um, with her, the role of memory and recollection is central to both of those. So Circe feeds the men a drug that will make them forget their home in order to keep Odysseus there. But, of course, the drugs don't work on him, and he retains the power uh, of the memory of home and fights to release them. Um, when Odysseus's men are among the lotus eaters, also they lose interest in returning home. And Homer says that all the memory of their home was dissolved, and that Odysseus's intercession prevents them from forgetting, right? So this memory of home is what keeps them um, on their sojourn. So this provides uh, the basis for my claim that death is a kind of homecoming, a place from which we've been separated or alienated, and that recollection reminds us of that originary home. And I go on then to look at many, many instances in the Phaedo where Plato is echoing all kinds of Homeric um, modes of expression and, and um, symbols, including uh, pretty vivid nautical imagery, and this nautical imagery, you know, there's the second sailing. People know uh, about that. Um, it's probably the most famous. But there are other instances. And then also the um, afterlife, these myths that I mentioned briefly before and the top, topology there is about these flowing waters that return us to uh, where we uh, need to go. So this originary home to which we're returning then brings me back full circle to a connection with Timaeus, that it's this um, uh, reunification or disalienation from those originary noetic objects that we were alienated from when we became individuated souls uh, that uh, brings us full circle back to the Timaeus. Um, so I, we're, we're close to running out of time, but I did, I did want to also get to the very... Uh, uh, fun discussion that you have also in the same chapter about the pun uh, with uh, Socrates as he grows, uh, you know, colder and more rigid as the hemlock, you know, kind yes. of creeps up from the from his feet. Um, could you could you um, talk a little bit about that? Yes. So this is um, this begins with um, uh, it's actually not original to me, but Eva Cools in her book The Reign of the Phallus. Uh, she points out that this scene where he talks about his um, becoming uh, cold and stiff and so forth, that there are puns in this passage. Um, the word is psuku uh, that has these different um, meanings and it can, in fact, mean an erection. So she she sort of takes that um, really uh, seriously. Okay, so... Um, 
Uh, I'd like to ask, as a as a final question, what sort of work you see yourself, um, what sort of direction uh, you see yourself going in next? Well, I have um, three projects right now. One is in ancient, well, I guess they're all in ancient philosophy. Only one is in Plato, doing Plato. So um, we talked earlier about the Republic, and I'll confess that the Republic was really a, a bugaboo through this whole project. I found myself continually being sucked into talking about it when it really wasn't what I wanted to talk about. And I, I started to think of the Republic as this sort of playground bully among the dialogues because it throws its weight around even though um, you know the ideas in it are really inconsistent with a lot of things that are in other dialogues. So um, one of the things I'm working on and hope to have done very, very soon is a treatment of Eros in the Republic uh, where I go back to some of the questions you asked me about, Carrie, about Eros and Epithumia. Um, it's a little bit different in the Republic. The other two projects I have going right now are, um, they're sort of cousins to each other. And they both are on Aristotle. They stemmed from some uh, activist work on my own campus with regard to gender pay equity. And I began asking the question whether people could be held accountable, mor morally accountable, for their perceptions and I use Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics to argue, in fact, that uh, perception does fall under the category of the voluntary, and we can be held accountable for our perceptions. And I, I want to – so one paper is about just a close reading of the ethics, making that argument. The second paper then spins off from that and looks specifically at um, gender bias and perception in gender bias and asking about moral culpability for those kinds of biased perceptions. Do, do you include things like uh, various implicit biases? Yes, yes, indeed. And there's, uh, there's so many wonderful psychological studies that I think I can draw from that help to kind of gird up the philosophical argument that I want to make. Uh, cool. Well, um, I think we are out of time at this point, but um, I do want to thank you for, for such a great interview. Oh, thank you very much. And again, I'm just so thrilled to have the opportunity. And thank you for doing such a careful job reading my book. Um, I appreciate that. Okay. Well, thank you again. And uh, uh, we'll be listening to this very soon. Okay. Thank Thanks, you. Carrie. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Jill Gordon, Charles A. Dana, Professor of Philosophy at Colby College, about her new book, Plato's Erotic World, just out from Cambridge University Press. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and thank you for listening. <laughs>